And so today, we are continuing to follow this conversation as it again goes in a direction that you might not expect. You can find it in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And so the titles of today's message is Malachi's Message on Stewardship. Malachi's Message on Stewardship. So let's read the entire passage together to get a sense of it, then we'll come back and unpack it. All right, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. All right, I have a question for you. How many of you just checked out when I said the words tithes and offerings? All right, don't raise your hand. All right. Uh, but I'm, I'm just wondering how many of you just checked out because, you know, I asked this question because I know that this is a topic that people often have strong opinions about and everybody already knows what they think they know, right? And I know as a pastor that there are some important and honest questions that need to be asked and answered with respect to this issue. Questions like, you know, isn't that part of the law? Or isn't that abolished at the cross? Or aren't you saying, Pastor Paul, that if you should tithe, then aren't you saying that you are somehow earning your way with God through good works? And all of these are important questions. And all of these are fair questions. And, I, and we want to get this right, right? We want to speak truth about what God says and speak accurately about what the Bible teaches. And so I hope that by now you know that my style is, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. All right, I'm not really a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm more of a, a teacher and an exhorter. So my motivation is to say, what does the word say? Okay, what does it say? And then to say, once we know what it says, hey, let's go after God with everything that we have, right? Let's be everything that God says that we can be. And that's, that's my motivation. So here's a deal I want to make with you this morning. As the preacher, I promise not to go all hellfire and brimstone on you this morning, all right? And in return, I hope that whatever you think you already know, whatever you think you already um, understand about uh, this topic, that you listen with an open heart. And then be like the Bereans who search the scriptures to say, are these things true? Is this, is this accurate, all right? Is that a deal? All right, good. So let's go. Starting in verse 6 and 7, God says, starts by saying, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So the first thing God says to them is, you know, I haven't changed. Nothing has changed with me. I'm the same God uh, who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the same God who parted the Red Sea and brought you into the promised land. I'm the same God who came down on the mountain and gave you the Ten Commandments. I'm the same God who brought you into the promised land, established you there. I, the Lord, do not change. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still right here, but you have changed. 
For all these years, you've turned away from my decrees, and, and, and you don't follow me. You don't follow my ways. It's like God is looking across the table at them, and in the midst of a very strained discussion, he says, you know, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still right here. I'm still vested in this relationship. I still want to be your God. It's you who've changed. It's you who've walked away from this covenant relationship. You know, it doesn't look like you want me to be your God. And up to this point, this is all very, kind of very general. There's not, nothing real specific here. And he says that pretty much, you know, you've forsaken me in, in everything. You've turned away from the covenant. And he concludes with this plea in the middle of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. If you come back to me, I will receive you. If you come back to me, you'll find that my heart is open to you. And look at their response at the end of verse 7. It says that they ask, well, how are we to return to you, God? It's like they're looking across the table, they're looking at their situation and, and how far they are from God, and, uh, and, and they're saying, God, we don't even know how to get back. If we wanted to come back, we're not even sure how we would get there. How many of you have ever met someone in that type of situation? How many of you have ever been the person in that kind of situation? You Somehow you got yourself so far afield from, from where you know God wants you to be, and you're thinking, how in the world am I ever going to get back to God and get, get back to where I need to be? And that's why I love God's response here. He doesn't give them a hundred different things to work on. He just starts with one thing, just one issue. You know, if you've ever find yourself away from God or somewhere where you know you shouldn't be and you're wondering, how in the world am I ever going to get back to God? Just take the first step. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Just take the first step. And so let's follow the story here. Verse 8. It says, they ask, well, how are we to return? And God answers with another question. He says, will a mere man, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You know, now that's a startling accusation. God looks across the table at them and says, you know, you're robbing me. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, I don't want to have God ever accuse me of robbing anyone. But least of all, I don't want uh, God to accuse me of robbing him. I mean, the last being that anyone should want to rob is a being who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. It's like that dumb thief who walks up to a house where everything's lit up, there's clear cameras everywhere, and you can see in the living room the guy is sitting there with a shotgun. And he goes in anyway, right? Well, to rob someone who's all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful wouldn't want to be in that situation. And so they respond by asking, how are we robbing you? Verse 8, in the middle of verse 8. And at the end of verse 8, God replies, in tithes and offerings. So now let's stop here for a minute. Because I want to give you some background about tithes and offerings and take up some of the legitimate questions that we asked earlier. So the first question is this. What is a tithe? Right? Anyway, you know, maybe many of you already know what a tithe is, but not everybody knows. So a tithe is simply means a tenth. The Bible words that are translated as tithe mean a tenth, a tenth portion. And whenever you see the word tithe in the Bible, it means a tenth of a person's income or increase that is given to God. So in those days, it was often in the form of animals and produce. A person's wealth and increase was usually measured in the size of their 
crops and in the sides of their herds and flocks. And, you know, sometimes it was given in the forms of money, but often in the form of animals and produce. Now, the second question that a lot of people have is this. Isn't the tithe part of the Old Testament law? And isn't the law abolished at the cross? Now, that's a good question, and it's an important question. And it requires a careful answer because, you know, there's a lot of people who are really sloppy when it comes to applying and interpreting uh, the Old Testament. You know, some will just take um, any requirement and, uh, and say, yeah, that's valid today. It says it there. We have to do it today. And then others will just take the entire Old Testament and just throw it out and say, you know, none of that really applies today because now we're in a new age of grace. You know, and both of those ideas are sloppy, okay? So, so the first mistake that is sometimes made uh, with the Old Testament is to make this equation that the Old Testament equals law, that everything in the Old Testament is law. Now, it is true that the Old Testament contains the law. It contains the law of Moses, and it also contains what we call the writings of the prophets and also the other writings, which are the historical books and the poetic books like Psalms and Proverbs. And though these other sections are sometimes informed and influenced by the law of Moses, they are not the law themselves. Now, it's also true to say that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The New Testament fulfills, completes the Old Testament. And what the law and the prophets pointed to was the cross of Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfilled everything that the law and the prophets pointed to. And it's also true to say, as the Apostle Paul did, that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Observance of the law doesn't make one right with God, and, and good works can never make you right with God. You can only be right with God through genuine living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through genuine living faith in God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so the question then becomes, well, what happens with the law? What happens to the things in the Old Testament? Well, as we study it, we'll find this, that the cross of Jesus, now catch this, the cross of Jesus is a dividing line in history. And everything from the Old Testament, it passes to the cross. Everything from the Old Testament comes to the cross. And there, it's either fulfilled in Jesus and abolished, or it's fulfilled in Jesus and reinterpreted and passes into New Testament life. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Theologians have identified basically three parts of the Mosaic Law. The first is the ceremonial law. This is all the law that had to do with their worship, the animal sacrifices, the temple system, the clothing that the priests had to wear, the dietary laws about cleanness and uncleanness. All, all were part of the ceremonial law. And all of that ceremonial law, it comes to the cross and is fulfilled in Jesus. All of it pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then it's all abolished. That's why as Christians... We don't bring animal sacrifices with us when we come to church. Can I tell you, I am so glad that is not part of my job description. Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring a lamb this morning? Amen. Someone else say amen. All of that ceremonial law comes to the uh, cross and is abolished. And then we have what is called the civil law. Now, the civil law was all of those things that had to do with how they lived in their society. They Laws about special days and religious calendar days and 
laws on theft and trespassing. And uh, all of those laws come to the cross and they are fulfilled in Jesus and are no longer required for personal righteousness. Okay, so observing the ceremonial days and things like that. Now, some of the civil law, it's very wise for societies to continue to keep those principles, like laws about making restitution after somebody has stolen something. They're wise to keep those laws, okay? And then lastly, there's what theologians refer to as the moral law. And the most famous of all of those, of course, is the Ten Commandments. But there are more, there are others as well, like Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. That's all part of the moral law. And, and it's actually quite easy to see from the New Testament that the moral law comes to the cross and it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and it's reinterpreted then for New Testament life, and it passes into the New Testament, all right? So let me show you what I mean, because uh, I know some of you are probably wondering right about now, are you saying we're righteous by the law and so forth? No, 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 absolutely not. What we're saying is that these moral laws are reinterpreted at the cross and pass into New Testament life, and I'll show you how. The Old Testament law, do not murder, is reinterpreted for Christians and passes into New Testament life, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, as don't even be angry. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, do not even be angry with somebody. And then he said, the Old Testament law, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He says, I tell you, do not even look at a woman lustfully. Right? It's reinterpreted for New Testament life. Then Jesus said, you've heard it said, you know, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies. Right? It's reinterpreted for New Testament life. So it's not like the ceremonial law. We don't say, hey, you know, now we're in an age of grace, right? So uh, look, that's all law, so that law about murder just doesn't apply anymore. You can go out and murder anyone you want because, hey, we're in an age of grace. Who says that? Right? Or we don't say, you know, hey, you know, that law about adultery, you know, you can just go out and commit adultery with everyone you want because, hey, we're in an age of grace and we can, and we can do that, right? We don't, we don't say those, those kinds of things because the moral law is not abolished by the cross. It's fulfilled in Jesus and reinterpreted for New, New Testament life. And so here's the big idea. It's not that you become righteous by doing all of these things. I mean, you don't become righteous before God by avoiding killing somebody, right? You don't become righteous before God by avoiding adultery. Instead, the New Testament idea is that now, having become righteous through faith in Christ, having become righteous by the cross of Jesus, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. We now have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And by the power of this Holy Spirit living in us, we go beyond, we live beyond the requirements of the moral law. You know, it's not doing good works make us become righteous. It's the righteous God living his life and expressing himself through us, making us righteous. And not just in the legal sense, but in the practical sense as well. Power of the Holy Spirit working in us enables us to go beyond, to live above the baseline requirements of the moral law. That's how we handle the law of Moses. Now, that leads us to the next question then. Well, what about this idea of tithing? Is it ceremonial law? Is it civil law? Is it moral law? Well, here's another question. Is it even law at all? Let's look at it. 
Let me ask you this. When did the tithe originate? And don't, don't shout it out, but think in your, your mind for a second. When did the tithe originate? Usually when I ask this question, the answer I get is, well, of course, it originated with Moses, right? Moses gave us the law, uh, the tithing in the law, right? But the truth is, it actually originated much before the law, very early on. We see the practice of tithing uh, practiced by Abraham. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 7 and in Genesis chapter 14. And we see tithing practiced by Jacob as well. You can see that in Genesis chapter 28. And, and, we, and we think that the way that they tithe was simply to take 10% of the increase in their flocks and herd and offer it to God directly in sacrifice. That is, if they started the year with 1,000 sheep and they ended the year with 1,500 sheep, their increase was 500, so they tithed on that. They would offer 50 sheep in sacrifice to the Lord. And, and now please note that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not live under the covenant with Moses. They knew nothing of the Old Testament law. They lived under what was called the Abrahamic covenant. The law came for over 400 years later. And this Abrahamic covenant, it's the covenant of faith. This was the covenant of the Messiah. This was the covenant that was best illustrated what the New Testament covenant would be. As a matter of fact, there's such a close connection with the Abrahamic covenant and the New Testament covenant that the Apostle Paul said that those who belong to Jesus are Abraham's children. And they are heirs of the promise that was given to Abraham. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 3. And not only that, but it goes on to say that the law, which was introduced 430 years later, did not set aside the covenant of Abraham. The covenant with Abraham remained in force and in effect all the way up until the time of Jesus. And it's under this covenant, this covenant of faith, that Abraham and Jacob tithe. And then some 400 years later, God repurposed and redirected the tithe to go to the support of the temple, to provide for the priests and the Levites so they could give attention to their duties, to, the, to, to worship and to teaching the word of God. And uh, they also would provide sometimes for the poor in the land as well. So at that point, tithing did become part of the law. And so now we come to the New Testament. What happens in the New Testament? Does it pass through? Is it, is it something that God expects of New Testament believers? What, what's the principle to follow? Now, we've already seen that the patriarchs tithe under the Messianic covenant of faith without reference to the law. You know, and, but I've heard some ask this question. There's still some questions to ask. I've heard some ask this question or kind of make this argument. And, and maybe you've heard it. You know, it goes something like this. You know, Pastor Paul, tithing is never repeated or reestablished in the New Testament. And some of the other moral commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So therefore, it's abolished. Now, I want you to see two things about this idea or this argument, okay? The first is that it's a non sequitur. I need to know what a non sequitur is. Basically, it's a conclusion that doesn't really follow from the idea that went before. Okay, a non sequitur. A conclusion doesn't really follow from that. This is a non sequitur. The idea that, uh, well, since it isn't repeated, you know, it's abolished. Now, let me illustrate this to you by giving you another non sequitur, a, a conclusion that doesn't follow, okay? And it would go like this Since tithing is never abolished, specifically abolished in the New Testament, and other parts of the law are abolished, like animal sacrifice and circumcision, therefore, it stands. Now, do you see what I mean by both of those are conclusions that um, don't necessarily follow from what went before? 
They are um, what we call, um, and what theologians call, inferences. It's the use of logic. I'm using uh, a, some logic to come to a conclusion, but it's not exactly what the Bible says. They're non sequiturs. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and this may be more important about that argument, is that it's really just not true either. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Now here, Jesus is in the process of rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for their attitudes and behaviors, and we come to verse 23, and Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And, you know, and usually when I quote this, you know, someone will say, well, you see, Pastor Paul, Jesus says that justice, mercy, and faithfulness are more important matters to the, of the law. Uh, to which I say, exactly. That's what Jesus said. They're more important matters. And these Pharisees were pursuing a legalistic righteousness that did not touch their hearts at all. And that's absolutely true. And they thought that they were obtaining righteousness by outwardly following the law to the, to, to the minutest detail, while at the same time their hearts were completely devoid of mercy and there was no faithfulness towards God in their hearts. Listen, can I tell you something? Tithing that way will do nothing for you. Tithing of itself will never make you righteousness. Any more than refraining from murder will make you righteous. Or refraining from adultery will make you righteous. Or refraining from every, anything else in the moral law will make you righteous. However, that doesn't mean it's abolished. Any more than restrictions against murder or adultery are abolished. Look at the verse again. While Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for their lack of justice and mercy and faithfulness, he actually validated the tithe as well. He said, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's not about legalistic righteousness, you know, it shouldn't be a point of pride like, wow, look at me, hey, I tithe. It's, it's something that we do as we seek with all of our hearts to love justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So for me, the, way, the, way, the place I come down with this, and I think it's biblically accurate, is for the one who's in a covenant relationship with God, it's one of those moral responsibilities that was practiced before the law under the covenant of Abraham was reinterpreted by the law and then comes to the cross, is reinterpreted, and passes into the New Testament, where we now go beyond the requirements of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and I want you to really think for a second about what this means. I mean, just like we go way beyond the law of not murdering someone, right? To, to instead of just not murdering someone, instead we're not even angry, and we express love, right? Love your enemies. Just like we go, we go way beyond the law of not committing adultery, refraining from that, we go way beyond that to faithfulness as, to the covenant that we're in, right? Well, in the same way with the tithe, for me, the idea is to go way beyond that, way beyond the requirement of, of that law. Um, it's like uh, with this grace of giving, we want to do the same thing. And, and that's really the spirit of the entire New Testament. The spirit of the New Testament is not an I do less spirit. The spirit is, of the New Testament is an I do more by the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. So for me, as I understand it, as I try to practice it, the tithe is just a minimum baseline. 
It's not a point of righteousness or pride. Like for me to say, God, aren't you proud of me? I, I, I tithe would kind of be like saying, God, aren't you proud of me? I didn't murder someone today. I mean, if some of you, if that's where you are, you've just come out of some, you know, awful gang or something, and this is the first day you didn't, well, good, keep it up. But for those of you who've been in Christ, if you're still on that level, right, for me to get all excited about that would be like saying, God, aren't you proud of me? I didn't commit adultery today. My heart says, God, you know, I want to be a blessing, God. I want to bless you in a way that I can even go beyond the minimum requirements. By the power of the Holy Spirit, let's go beyond. Let's have a heart that wants to go beyond what the minimum requirements are. Look at the spirit of the earliest Christians in Acts 2.44. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, I don't think this verse has anything to do with governmental systems, as some people take it. Or it's not about teaching communism or socialism or anything like that. What it does show is that these New Testament Jesus followers were motivated by the Holy Spirit to go way beyond the moral requirements of the law. This was way past tithing. And, and, and they weren't thinking about the tithe because it was, they were so far beyond it, it wasn't even something on their minds. So coming back to our passage in Malachi, there are several principles that I want you to see as we move forward in these last three verses, 9 to 12. All right, so the first is this. It says, verse 9, they were under a curse partly because of their failure to tithe. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And the nature of this curse can be seen in, chapter, in, in verse 11. It looks like they were suffering from want because of pests, probably locusts, devouring their crops and their fields, and the fruit was dropping before it was ripe. Now, I don't think that this was God actively punishing them and calling out the locusts and uh, making the, the fruit fall off the vine, but, but the world from the time of the fall is under a curse. And I think this is more like God saying, okay, you don't want any part of me? All right, I'm going to step back and just let you labor under this, under this curse. And they were suffering all sorts of bad things, disasters and famines, and God wasn't withholding his hands. It's like God is saying here, you know, if you don't want to honor me, I'm going to list all of these things happen to you. And uh, so it's possible that sometimes some of the things that we say that are getting in the way of us honoring God with the tithe may be the very things are the result of not honoring God with the tithe. So I've asked Dan Kreider, where are you, Dan? Are you here? Where is he? He's back there. He's coming. And I've asked him to come and just share a quick story that kind of illustrates that. Would you welcome Dan as he comes? All right, go ahead, join me here. He's going to sit across the table. We're just going to have a conversation here, all right? All right. See, now, Dan, I've, I understand that there was a time in your life when you were not tithing and God kind of got your attention. Why don't you just go ahead and Amen. share that? Uh, yeah, my wife and I, we were young Christians and uh, I had been raised in the church, and I knew about tithing. My parents were faithful tithers, and, and I was taught to tithe, but uh, did you ever hear of stubbornness? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, you know, well, a couple months ago, the pastor talked about stubbornness, and, and you know, that's where I was. I was stubborn. I, I thought, well, I work for this money. This money's my money, uh, but... How many of you ever had a reality check by God? <laughs> uh, this, this one day I was, I was working and I, I drove a big uh, feed truck where we manufactured feed on the farms and the thing was 
like almost 20 tons, just empty. And uh, I was going down this main highway, 896, down near Green Tree, and there was an eight-ton bridge. It was just marked down to eight tons because it needed repairs. But we had customers on both sides of the road, so uh, I had to either cross the road uh, to get there, or I had to go on another road, which just said no trucks allowed. So I took my chance, and I went across the bridge, uh, only to see down the road at 372 there that there was a state trooper. And as <laughs> soon as he seen me cross the bridge, I seen his lights come on. And uh, he pulled me over, and he said, uh, you're going to have to wait here until the scale truck gets here. And, you know, like, like I said, I wasn't tithing at the time uh, like I should have been. I was giving, you know, little bits and pieces, but I wasn't bringing the full tithe to God. I wasn't honoring God. You know, I said, you are Lord, but I wasn't treating him as Lord. And uh, so the scale truck came, and he weighed my truck, and the officer came back to my truck, and he said, uh, Mr. Kreider, uh, your citation is the amount of $3,310, and you have 10 days to comply. Well, when you're struggling anyway, and then you get a $3,310 a $3, bill to comply within 10 days, and I, I call out to God. I said, God, what, what is going on? And God revealed to me, if you had been faithful in your tithing, that is the amount. It was, I was making 3300 and whatever dollars that year. And it, my tithe should have been 3310 bucks. <laughs> and God revealed. He said, he said, you can either give it to me. And be blessed, or it's going to be gone anyway, and you won't be blessed. From that time on, I've been tithing, not only my tenth, but over, because God has blessed me in faithfulness. And because he has blessed me, I'm not only able to bless this church, but I'm able to bless other ministries outside of the church. And it seems the more I bless God, the more he blesses me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, you know, is it possible that some of the things that we think are preventing us from biblical stewardship are actually the result of lack of biblical stewardship? Um, then the next thing I want to see, you see in these verses that there are two things that God says will happen when we do tithe. He says he will rebuke the devourer and he will pour out a blessing. That's, Dan kind of just alluded to that. Verses 10 and 11, he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field from, will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. So for those who honor 
and trust God with their tithes and offerings, God will often mitigate and deliver you from things that would devour your resources. And this is God getting actively involved in your life in a positive way and blessing you. Now, sometimes I've heard amazing stories about how, you know, people began tithing and, and God brought some miraculous uh, uh, provision from some outside source. But you know that a lot of times, often, God blesses in simple, straightforward, and obvious ways as we move towards Him and trust Him. So I've asked Becky Judith if she would come. She's coming now, and she's going to share a story of how God blessed her in this way. Would you welcome Becky with me? Now, Becky, you told me a story about how God blessed you as you began to tithe. Can you kind of tell us about how that story goes? Yeah. Um, I um, just, oh, sorry, just just coming back to the church, um, I knew about tithing from my parents and, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. But being a single mom, I was on a very fixed income. Well, um, during that time, I was um, living, I mean, worldly still. Um, I was... um, I was ashamed of my habit of smoking, and um, what I was um, praying about the tithe and like, hey, um, or you know, I felt like the Holy Spirit was really impressing upon me. Okay, I need you to step out now. Now's the time for you to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, my my funds are limited. Where do I start? And um, he told me to equate my first tithe with one pack of cigarettes. So I tied the amount of a pack of cigarettes faithfully, um, which then led me to ended up quitting, mm-hmm. <laughs> quitting and being um, delivered from um, being addicted to nicotine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Praise the Lord. So, <laughs> I must say, that's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that tithing helped them stop smoking. That is awesome. God, God does some amazing awesome things. God says he blesses and uh, he rebukes the devourer when we tithe. So tithes and offerings are a regular reminder to me that God owns everything that I have and everything that I am, that I belong to him, that he purchased me at the cross. And then they're also a statement of faith on my part, that they say that I believe God when he says that he will never leave me and forsake me, and when he says that I will provide for you out of all of my riches and glory. And then also, they're a joyful offering on my part, a joyful worship offering on my part. It's one of the ways that I offer myself as a living sacrifice to God, one of the ways that I love God, grow in my relationship with him, and serve him. Now, let me conclude with this thought. You know, I thought, you know, how would I conclude a message like this? Maybe I should take an offering, right? (laughs) Relax, I'm not going to do that. So here's what we're going to do. Would you all bow your heads with me? And I hope by now that uh, you see that when, when God was talking about tithes and offerings in this passage, it was about way more than simply making charitable donations, you know? It's really about returning to God with all of our hearts. It's about giving ourselves to God. It's really about saying, God, you know, I want to honor you with my whole life, with everything that I am, everything that I have, all my talents, all my abilities, all my resources. God, I acknowledge that they are all yours. And I want to live in the light of your coming kingdom. So I want to spend myself on things that matter 
for eternity. Jesus, I, I want you to look at me when I stand before you and, and, and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. So I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for the body here. And after that, I'm going to ask us to stand and just sing this one song together as, a, as kind of a declaration for our entire life. And, and then we'll close, and, and God will bless you. And uh, but Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. You gave everything for us. You held nothing back.